Good morning. Can, can you hear me? No? Testing, one, two. Can you hear me, John? No. <laughs> How can you say no if you don't? I mean, you know. So maybe that's not, maybe this is not working. I could use that at my age. Oh, now you can hear me. Now you can. Yes. I better stand back from this a little bit. Good morning. Um, today we get into the heart of the subject of hell. And uh, someone asked me if I was going to share a joke this morning. This is a hard subject to, to want to share a joke about, as you well know. But we're going to get into what the scripture says. Did that just change again? Uh, have, it, have you guys been contributing to the Riverbend Equipment Fund? They, they might need some help. Now that's really loud, isn't it? That's good. Is that better? Okay. All right, some of you have asked for a little bit more time, so we're starting a little early and going a little bit late. Uh, I, think I, I think Jerry said no more than 11.15. He's going to signal me or John will give me the reindeer signal. Correct? Correct. Okay. At 10. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we, we come to a very hard and difficult subject for us as humans. And yet it is in your word. And we pray that you would guide us this morning into all the truth concerning it. And Father, that we would just bow the knee to you. You are God. You are all holy, and righteous, and just, and loving, and merciful. You sent your Son so that He would pay the price, and we would not have to. And we could have new life, and serve you, and be with you for all eternity, and avoid the consequences of sin. So, Father, we commit this class to you this morning. We ask that Jesus Christ might be lifted up and glorified, that we might be strengthened in the faith, that we might be more sober about this particular subject. So we commit our time to you now, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Okay, I think this is still going off and on. Can you hear? Excuse me? Troy was here. Oh, he was here. Okay, you can hear me back there, Luke? Okay. All right, you have a handout today, and... Uh, it is called, What is the Biblical View of Hell in the Old and New Testaments? Remember last week we were looking at several areas where even evangelical teachers and pastors have begun to deviate from the faith. One of those was annihilationism. Another was universalism. Inclusivism in which people are teaching if people don't hear the gospel, they can be saved anyway, or they won't certainly be lost if they've never heard. 
And then there's the one of purgatory, which we were ending up on. There are even evangelicals today who are contemplating and teaching that there is a purgatory. There is a place for refinement that would allow people to escape hell and be refined so they could enter heaven in whatever period of time that refining takes place. Now, the only place that even Roman Catholics get the doctrine of purgatory is out of some of the apocryphal writings, which are not part of at least Protestant canon, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Can't find purgatory there. But some have found it in the apocryphal writings. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read some of the apocryphal books, but if you're a Christian, it doesn't take you long in reading them and looking at them to realize this is not the Word of God. This is not in keeping with the rest of Scripture. But there are evangelicals who are going that way. And I mentioned to you, I have a friend in uh, Colorado Springs that's written a book and dealing with the subject of rewards, but he is basically considering or thinking now that maybe Maybe there is a place on the other side of the tracks that some will go who are not going to get many rewards and they're going to go to this place and be refined before they can cross over into the real glory of heaven. So all these things are out there. And uh, one of you came up and asked this morning, why is it, why is it that men who have been faithful to the Word of God are changing and saying there is no hell or, or the wicked will be annihilated or all of the wicked will be saved and brought in one day. Why are people saying that when the scriptures don't? One of the issues is the intellect. The human intellect and our feelings and emotions. We sometimes begin to listen to things long enough and in detail enough to begin to start thinking about them humanly. And hell is a, is a hard subject. To think that people will leave this life after maybe 70, 80 years or a lot less who don't know Christ, have never come to Him and been saved and they will enter a eternal stage of suffering and damnation because they rejected what he had to offer them. So part of it is the human intellect, and then the human intellect begins to reinterpret the Word of God. I think one of the things that you can do with the Word of God, if you are not careful... If you're not careful, Troy's going to interrupt you. <laughs> That's right. back on yet? Yes. Testing? Okay, good. So one of, the, one of the things you can do with the Word of God is you can prove just about anything you want to if you select your verses. If you select verses, you can prove almost anything. You can make a case, Christians have told me, we can't judge one another when it comes to the subject of church discipline. Matthew 18. 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 5. I've had people tell me, I can't do that. We're not supposed to judge. 
Is that what the Bible says? If you just looked at one chapter in the Sermon on the Mount and looked at a verse about judging others and be careful, you know, you have to judge yourself, you could come away with that if that was the only, the only verse on that subject. But if you look at all of the verses on judgment, we're told if I see my brother in sin, I have to make a judgment about that and I have to go and inform him that he's in sin. And he needs to repent and he needs to turn. So you can do almost anything with the Scriptures. You can pull out a few verses that sound like men are going to be destroyed. But we're going to look at some verses today that take that completely out of the picture. You have to be a good student of the total Word of God, both old and new, both what Jesus said and what the apostles said. And that's why you heard me say last week, I tell my students all the time, you have to qualify your message. Qualify it with the whole counsel of God. Don't just preach a verse or preach a passage and let it lead people one way without bringing in the corollary passages which amplify and, and which paint the whole picture for what you need to know about that subject. That's what some have done with the subject of hell. They picked out verses that support their intellect and their feelings and they walked in a different direction. Even some men like John Stott, who was a godly man as far as I can tell from his writings and, and reading what he's had to say, a reformed man, and yet in, later in his life he gave into this teaching on that the wicked would be destroyed. That casting them into the lake of fire in Revelation 20 would be their consummation. They would be eradicated. Try to remove the subject of suffering then from an eternal perspective. So that's kind of, kind of the, the, the things that have happened. One of the beginning points here this morning, I want you to think, think of Romans chapter 12, 19 with me for a moment. Romans 12, 19 says, Don't seek out vengeance on your own. Don't you go and seek vengeance on another one that's hurt you. But you remember what he comes back with right at, in the same verse, right at the heels of that? Leave room for the wrath of God. Because the Word of God says, and there, there he quotes the, the Old Testament, Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. The Lord is the avenger. He's the one that's going to one day bring wrath upon those that deserve it. So what, he's what Paul's telling us is we don't seek vengeance. We don't seek to pour out wrath. We ought to be, have a forgiving heart when people ask to be forgiven. We ought to be kind and generous and loving as much as we can. And that doesn't mean that we don't believe in law enforcement because law has been given, government has been given to put down evildoers. I have a son in this church who loves to lock people up that are evildoers. He works for the FBI. That's, his, that's what he's been doing now for many, many years. But his job is to put evil people behind bars. You know what one of the sad things is for people in law enforcement today, in our day, in this land? Is that prosecutors don't always cooperate with the law enforcement. 
And neither do judges. Even when they get a good case. And it's frustrating for men who are especially godly men in law enforcement. But when it comes to us personally, we don't seek personal vengeance. We leave room for the wrath of God. Then in 2 Timothy, we're also told... I think that faded again, did it? I'll just try to be loud. Um, in 2 Timothy, in chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, Paul tells those, Timothy, and those that he's writing to, and us, rightly divide the word of truth, because there are some, he says, that are even not doing this, and are saying that Jesus has already come. And he names two of them. He says, avoid them. Avoid them. Rightly divide the word of truth. It is possible to wrongly divide it. And people do that all the time. One of the discouraging things when you teach seminary students is to say, guys, I have to tell you, there's all kinds of views out there. On this, and on this, and on this. And you have to strive with all your might, all your strength, and with God's help to come to the truth of the word. Rightly divide it. You know what else he says in the very next chapter in that book? The last letter that Paul writes in writing to young Timothy who's going to be taking over for Paul because Paul, when he writes that letter, is weeks, maybe a few months away from death in a Roman dungeon. And he knows the verdict has already come. He's going to die. He's going to become a martyr. And he says, Timothy, know this, all Scripture has been breathed out by God. And it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God might be perfect, equipped for every good work. It's so important to rightly divide the Word of God. Why do you think James says there's going to be a stricter judgment upon those who teach? And, that, and I'm one of them. And that's a scary, that's a sobering thought when you get up to teach the Word of God. Am I handling it accurately? Am I treating it as though it was breathed out by God and it's spiritual? Am I giving a right interpretation of the passage? I hope so. I hope that for every man who teaches the Word of God. There are going to be time when godly men disagree on some things, especially in-time things. I would probably have a different view than some of you on in-time things. I think some things, though, we can allow latitude and say, you know, we don't know it all on that subject. We're still studying. We're still looking. Maybe the Scriptures have purposely not told us everything about that. But when it comes to the essentials of the faith, and I think the subject that we're on about heaven and hell are essentials, we better be right with the Word of God. We better be right. Well, let's look at this now. Uh, what do the Scriptures teach us about the doctrine of hell? We're going to look, first of all, at the Old Testament. And um, I think that went off again. So I'll try to raise my level. Turn to Daniel chapter 12 with me. And then we're going to look at one other passage in Isaiah. But Daniel chapter 12... <clears throat> and verses 1 and 2. Let me read them for you. 
think these things through soberly, look at them as we're going through them, and look at what they're saying and look at what they're not saying. Daniel 12, 1 and 2. Now, at that time, Michael, it's interesting that Gabriel and Michael are both in Daniel, both delivering messages. Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time and at that time our our people everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued what book do you think he's talking about the book of life that, that appears in revelation chapter 20 all who are in that all of the people, all of the Israel of God, which is both Jew and Gentile, who were selected before the foundation of the world to be saved. All of the people of God whose names are written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. I'm reading from the New American Standard. You know how that word could also and would probably be better translated is everlasting abhorrence. That's, that's a better way to translate that Hebrew word at that place. They're going to arise, they're going to awake, and they will be disgraced, and arise to everlasting abhorrence. We'll take a break. <laughs> it could be that the enemy doesn't want this message to, uh, to get out. And I'm not talking about Troy. <laughs> I meant the you, you can never can tell. <laughs> <coughs> You're gonna have to get up on top of that mic. Okay. This is gonna be a little weaker. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah. No. Oh. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Good. Better. I'm gonna get a little bit away from that. Okay. So what do you see here in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2? Everlasting contempt. Everlasting abhorrence is the issue. Now look over at Isaiah. These are Old Testament passages. The book of Isaiah. You know what's interesting about Isaiah? It has exactly the number of chapters that there are books in the Old and New Testament. 39 and 27, Old and New. 66, 66 chapters of Isaiah, and Isaiah can be divided right at chapter 39 and 40. A major division in the book of Isaiah. Isn't that interesting? How that just happened? No, it didn't just happen. God, God did that. It wasn't in the original scrolls, though. That's true. That's true. It's men did that. <laughs> men made the chapters. Okay. Look at, at uh, verse 22. What, what chapter? Oh, I'm sorry, 66. Oh. <laughs> chapter 66. Thank you. 
with all these different mics, I'm not sure what I'm doing this morning. So pray, pray for me if you would. Okay, 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, that's Revelation 21, which I will make will endure before me, endure, in other words, forever, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow before me, says the Lord. Then shall go forth, then they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all mankind. Does that sound like it leads to universalism? Does it sound like a second chance? Does it sound like Isaiah there is talking about annihilation? I don't think either Daniel or Isaiah are open to that. And another thing I think we could say, when men are created in the image of God, when they are created in His image, back in Genesis 1 and 2, the difference between a man, human, and the animal world, who also is a living being, animals are living beings, but they're not living human beings, who have the Spirit of God. We're made in God's image. He's Spirit. We are made both material and spiritual. We have two parts. We have an inner man and we have an outer man. And that inner man, that inner man, even an inner man that has died to fellowship with God, we're born with an inner man that's dead to Him, that needs to be raised to life if we're going to be with Him, that inner man's going to last forever, no matter what. That would be the teaching of Scripture. Some have said, oh, that's what the Greeks taught. No, the Greeks may have taught that, about the eternality of the Spirit, but they got it from God. That's where it came from in Genesis 1 and 2. We are created, even after our physical bodies die, to exist for eternity. And judgment is for eternity. Now we're going to go to the New Testament. We're going to see what some of the New Testament verses say. And the first thing we want to look at is what did Jesus say? How did Jesus think and feel about this subject? What did He have to say? He had more to say, by the way, about eternal destruction or damnation or judgment than any other single person in all of the Word of God, in all of the 66 books. Matthew, first of all. Turn with me to Matthew. We're going to look at several there in the book of Matthew. And we can just kind of work our way through. First turn to chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Described there as a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
not saying anything about termination, but that's what's going to be there. Descriptive words, figurative words, a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. Now look over at chapter uh, 13. <clears throat> chapter 13 of Matthew. Starts off here with talking about parables and the parable of the sower is the lead one into this. But when you get into the latter part of the chapter, verse um, 41 to 42 and then 49 to 30. So for 41 to 42, the Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now look down at 49 and 50. And so it will be at the end of the age, this age that we're in, when this age comes to an end, the angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth talking about the great day of separation. John Stott at least understood that. There's going to be a day of separation. And a separation that will never end. The people who are universalists see that being all worked backwards. That people who have been separated will now be joined again. At least John Stott saw something. There, there's this great divide. There's going to be this great separation at the end of the age. And as a result, for some, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now look over at chapter 24. Same book, Matthew. <clears throat> and our Lord's speaking in all of these. The Lord who is the most compassionate one um, in all of creation. And the Lord is the one who loves people and desires all men to come to Himself, He's the one saying these things. Keep that in mind. Chapter 24, and um, looking at verse 48 to 51. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and the gnashing of teeth. Again, figurative words, but strong words about a day of reckoning and about, about this fate that will come to those who reject him and his kind tender mercy and love. Now, look over at chapter 25, a couple of verses there. Verse 30, first of all, in chapter 25. He says there, and cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In, the, in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's just given another parable. There are three parables in Matthew 25 parable of the virgins, the parable of the talents, and then the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he's concluding these parables. We know that the virgins, the door is shut and they cannot enter because they did not have the oil, did they? 
when it comes to the talents, this is what he's saying at the end of this, there's going to be separation, outer darkness, and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now in the parable of the sheep and the goats and the separation there, here's what he says in verse 42 to 48. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in person and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And those will go away into eternal, what? Punishment. Eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, the contrast of the two. Both eternal. One is punishment. One is life. Eternal punishment, eternal life. That's going to be where the sheep and the goats end up. Uh, or in that, in that state, they will end up. Look over at the book of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Mark 3, 28 to 29. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be, be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, in other words, they're all possible to be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of a what kind of sin? Eternal sin. Eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So all sins can be forgiven except the sin of blasphemy. And there is eternal consequences, at least we know in this verse, for that particular sin. Now we could have a whole, a whole uh, sermon on that, a whole class on what that sin is and how it works. We won't go there today. But just to say, he's saying there are eternal consequences in relationship to that. Look over at chapter 9. Chapter 9 of Mark, 42 to 48. And whoever causes one of these little ones who, be, who, be, who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, it, if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Now, the Lord wasn't saying that literally. I, I hope you don't. <laughs> think he meant that. He's talking about how serious this matter is. If, you're, if, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. For you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into, and that's Gehenna. Remember what Gehenna is or was? It was that place outside the walls of Jerusalem where they took all the refuse and there was constant burning and constant smoke coming up from all of the refuse constantly being destroyed. Whoops. This has got a mind of its own today. Okay. Okay. Hopefully it stays with me. All right. Is it still on? Yeah. Good. Very good. Thank you, John. Um, where were we here? Oh, verse 43. Um, 
And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. Now, in my New American Standard, it says verse 44, see the marginal note. And that just means that in some of the early manuscripts, it was omitted, verse 44. Does anybody have verse 44 and want to read it? Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Right. So again, picturing what? Enduring, long, eternal suffering that's going to take place. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Again, the marginal note saying in the early manuscripts, 46 wasn't there, but I think it's probably very similar. 47, 47, and if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Where their worm does, and 48 they have in place, does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So those are some of the passages in Mark. Just a couple in Luke. Look over at Luke. And verse chapter 13, verse 27 and 28. Chapter 13, 27 and 28. <clears throat> and he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves being what? cast out. Sounds almost like the rich man in Lazarus where he's able to, to communicate with Abraham and with uh, Lazarus but he is in Hades awaiting the final day of judgment. So one other I chapter. Sure. Yes. What is fire? Excuse me? The fire. The real fire. Do I think it's real fire? Um, I'm going to go with John Piper on that. He says, I don't know. But um, if, if it is real fire, we know that the, the wicked are raised in bodily form in chapter 20, along with the righteous. We don't know. If, I would not say we're going to be raised with a glorified body suited for the new heavens and new earth. They're going to be raised bodily, but to suffer in this place. So I would probably go with Piper and say these are figurative words but as John Piper shared with me when I asked him that question after he spoke on one occasion, he said, Dwight, whatever it is, fire is just a picture of how bad it will be. How bad it will be. That's kind of where I would go with this, that it's figurative. But also you think about hell as, um, number one, the absence of God, but the absence of any kind of goodness where it will be all those that never repented of their of their murders and their rapes and all these things that evil things that they're going to be surrounded by all evil people just like they are and there'll be no mercy no grace and nothing right. exactly nobody will say yeah oh, you to go water. yeah <laughs> yeah because be you see that in Luke 16 with a rich man <coughs> and Lazarus 
one of the folks in our church asked that when we were going through this course back in the fall, um, raised the question about God not being there in hell. Here's the tension with that. God is everywhere at the same time. The way I would answer that is God is there in hell, but not in His grace, not in His mercy, not in caring for the people there. He is there in His wrath. He's there, but it's to pour out wrath for all eternity. Yes, sir. And, and that goes along with, uh, contradicts the idea that many people have that the devil rules over hell. No, he's in the deepest, hottest part of it. But yeah. people think he rules over hell punishing people. Right. No, that's, to me, not a biblical, not a biblical concept at all. He's there, and, and the Antichrist is there, and the false prophet is there, and all of his demons, you know, the fallen angels are with him, but they're suffering. He's not ruling. They're suffering because they're under, all of them, under the wrath of God. You know, so that's a good point. So regardless whether it's in the form of fire or whatever, it's eternal suffering on something. It's eternal suffering. And I think the pictures of the outer darkness and the fire and the worm never dies, you know, a lot of those are figures. We don't know exactly what what it is that's going on there, but we do get a feel from the rich man and Lazarus, uh, and Lazarus in Luke 16. We get a little bit of a feel of what it's like for him. He wants his relatives to know not to come there. And that's just a precursor to what he's going to have. He's being held there until uh, chapter 20 at the great white throne when the final judgment is made and then all of the wicked are cast into the lake of fire. Yeah, it's not, it's not going to be a place that anybody wants to be. But here's, here's another interesting thing about it. We know that the wicked, think of Romans 3 for a minute. No one understands God. No one seeks to do good. Why? They cannot. They cannot. They come into this world with animosity against Him. Dead to fellowship with Him. Some have su suggested, and even John MacArthur, and I tend to lean the way he leans on this, that the interesting thing about those that are in hell, if you think of Revelation 6, when he appears to judge, I see seven different times in Revelation, in the 22 chapters, seven different times that, that the writer brings us to the, to the end, to the day of judgment. Seven different times in that book. He brings us to the final judgment. The first one is in Revelation 6. And at that final judgment, what do the wicked do when he comes? Do they cry out for mercy and grace? You remember what they do? They cry out that the rocks might fall on them and hide them from Him. Did the rich man cry out for mercy and grace? He did not. He did not. The interesting thing that MacArthur brought up is he said, one of the things to postulate is, even though there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and it's a place of deep sorrow, you don't find them crying out. To follow Christ. That's what John MacArthur proposed. And I think, I think there's some verses and some things that you can put together that would say that. Lost people, even in this life, don't cry out to Him for mercy and grace unless the Spirit of God 
opens their eyes to see and their ears to hear and they find out their desperate need and they call to Him. And that's all because of the sovereign work of the living God because we all deserve punishment. Yes, Dan. You mentioned Romans 3. And uh, I'm thinking of Romans 2 and 3 and there's questions. What about those who never heard? Uh, Do you think when Paul is talking about those who have heard the law and know the law are being judged according to the law, but those who haven't have God's law in their heart, and that's how they'll be judged. Do you think that has any uh, part of uh, an answer to what about those who haven't heard? Um, no, I, 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 I'm not sure that it does, but what I would say here is... No, it's fine. I mean, that's why yeah. I'm asking. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Don't I, be nice to me. No, I, I don't know either. But I do know this, that every man coming into this world is dead to fellowship with him. We're dead in the inner man. We need life. Nicodemus was told that by Jesus. Nicodemus, we, we found, it's been interesting as we go through the Old Testament prophets, the course that I've been teaching, privileged to teach here with some of the young men on Tuesday and Thursday nights, you would be amazed. If you just, if you went on your computer screen and you had software to study the Bible and you clicked on the word heart, and said, show me all the places that heart is in the Old Testament. It's all over the place. It's in Isaiah. It's in Deuteronomy. It's in um, Ezekiel. It is in Daniel. It's all over the place. Men's heart was hard. The inner man, they came into this world, their spirit was dead to God. That's why no man, that's why Jesus even says, speak to them in parables. Because they don't understand. And only the ones that He is going to graciously and sovereignly. That's a hard doctrine, by the way. But here's the truth of the matter. Jesus says, when I saw Jerusalem, I, I wept over you. I wanted to gather you in like a, a mother hen gathers in her chicks. But you were what? Unwilling. It's on them. They were unwilling to come. And no man evidently is willing unless God works in their heart. Ann and I were driving back from Jacksonville yesterday afternoon and we were listening to some radio station. I don't even remember what it was, but it was one of these radio stations that plays hymns. It's, it's a Christian station, but it, it's back in my day, you know, when hymns were in view. And, and so we were listening to hymns and the guy on there, I told Ann, I said, yes, I resonate with him. Because he was saying, folks, the issue today is when we take the gospel out, People need life. You must pray before you go. You will never be able to persuade them. You will never, through your intellect and ability, apologetics, training, and all of that, you'll never be able to, and I don't say that you shouldn't have some of that to answer questions, but it's got to be the Spirit of God who opens their eyes to see. You know, the sad thing is, the covenant guys, the guys who are covenant theologians, kind of teach and think that if your kids are born into a Christian family, they're guaranteed because they're part of a covenant family that they're going to go to heaven. I got news for them. There's nothing in Scripture that teaches just because you're a physical descendant of Christian parents, you're going to heaven. Nothing. 
And then there are others who think if you're a Jew and you're, you're physically descended from Abraham, you're going to go to heaven. I had a guy come up, a friend at, at Dallas Seminary, when I was going through Dallas Seminary, he said, Dwight, I just came out of this class, and he says, I think one day every Jew will be saved. I went, what class did you just come out of? <laughs> what class did you just come out of? The, the scriptures say, Hebrews says, that those who followed Moses out of Egypt were primarily lost people and went into eternity that way and were not allowed to enter the land because they had no heart for him. Where would anybody on the dispensational side when some want to say that if you're a Jew because of your physical link to Abraham, that means salvation? No. It does not. If you're a child of Christian parents, does that guarantee you to be saved? The covenant guys? No. It's only because of the grace of God. I often ask the question, and maybe you do too, because I have siblings and I have relatives that were raised in a similar environment as me. And a lot of them have not come to the Lord. And I've asked God, why me? Why? If anything, I might have been worse than some of them. I might have, if you put us on a scale, deserved hell more than they. Why would you do that with me? I don't know, but I will be praising Him for eternity. That's the issue. Men don't understand. And, and men, maybe into this day, are saying, even in, in Hades, we don't want to come. We're not bound the knee to Him. That's another question about what does Philippians mean when it says one day every knee will bow. Does that mean every single knee or every knee of those who have come? Or does it mean also that even if they do bow, will it be a forced bowing of those who are in Hades and eventually hell? That was going to be my question. Okay. That, that right. was absolutely because, it, and I said, if, if every knee would bow, then they would recognize Christ. Right. But, but they did not, even at, at recognizing Christ, their yeah. hearts were so hardened, they would not call out to Him. Exactly. The demons and, and here's the, here, yeah, here's the other thing too about that group. Uh, the Universalists use that verse like crazy. Because they say, you see, one day we'll all be there and we'll all be bowing in a right mindset. And so the Universalists love that. Love that. But all these passages are telling us there's going to be a day of separation. A climactic day in which the sheep and the goats part ways. And it's an eternal parting. It's an eternal parting. I mean, we love our relatives. We, Anne and I pray for our family. We pray for our grandchildren. We pray for our, our sons, our three sons and their wives and their kids. We pray for other loved ones. But Anne and I have seen family members leave this life that we've shared Christ with. And we're not sure if they ever got it right. And the only thing we can come back and say is, God is totally righteous and just and perfect. He's all-knowing. He's capable to do whatever. And I don't have to know why He does the things He does when He does them. He will never sin. He will never make a wrong decision. He is perfect and righteous and holy and loving. And whatever He does 
is just. And whatever we get on the negative side, we deserve. It is only by grace that he brings anyone, anyone to himself. Okay, moving on. Um, excuse me. You made a, a distinction in something you said a minute ago between Hades and hell. Yes. Can you explain that, please? Yeah, Hades is, to me, Luke 16. That's where the, the uh, rich man went and is until Revelation 20, when all are brought before the great white throne, and then comes the final destination of either the new heavens and new earth, Revelation 21, or the lake of fire, described as the lake of fire. So where, where, do believe, where do believers go now? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We go to heaven. The big debate, I had to write a paper on this at seminary, and I've changed my mind about five times since then. Um, but the question was, when believers go to heaven, will we have an intermediate body until we get the glorified body? Do we exist there in some kind of bodily form, or is it spirit form? If you ever want to write a paper, come see me. I'll give you some places to go and get some views and study on that. The question is, I don't know for sure. I don't know. Could there be an intermediate body? I think there could, waiting the glorified. But we know that the glorified bodies do not come until the Lord comes back again. Right? That's when, that's when the wicked are judged. That's when we get glorified bodies. But we do know this, to be absent from the body, this body, is to be present with Him. We have two people in our church back in Colorado going to the Lord's presence this week. One was Doug's, the, the fellow who took over for me, the young man who began to be the teaching pastor there when I went, when I retired and went more into the seminary work. His father passed away. His father was a preacher. And I, I texted him and I said, Doug, I know you're sad but I know that you can rejoice because you know where your dad is right now. He's in the arms of the Lord. He is there with him. And he had to go over in St. Louis. He's over there now to do the, do the funeral. But another lady that's been in our, our group like this for years and years, she passed away on the, almost within hours if, as Doug's father. And I talked to her husband last night and he said, Dwight, the one thing I can rejoice in as much as I love her. They were going to be married 66 years April 1st, coming. 66 years. They loved each other. They cared for one another. They were both believers, both from North Carolina. He said, I told my wife the day we, we were to walk down that aisle. She, he said, I'm looking at this as a lifelong thing. If you're not, it's okay to leave. I don't know how many men would have that. I, I don't know if I'd have said that to Anne or not because she might have just turned around and headed out the back door. But he said it and he, he said, she said, honey, I'm in this. I'm in this with you. We're in it together. Well, she just went to be with the Lord. Whatever state she's in there, she's happy and she still exists and she is waiting as the, as the group in Revelation who are crying out, how long, O Lord, until Christ returns and we are together with Him with glorified bodies on the new heavens, in the new heavens and the new earth. Yes? Uh, before we read the parable where Jesus says it's better for you to enter into heaven with blind 
or yeah. without or in the without. Right. So that I don't think would be your glorified body. No. No. <laughs> no. And that's why my by the way my paper that I wrote at seminary, I concluded we were going to have an intermediate body. And, and several times since that, I've gone, no, we're not. Yes, we are. No, we're not. Yes, we are. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know for sure. How, but I know we will be there, and we will be with him, and we will be awaiting what is final. Yes? Our understanding or lack of understanding of all of this has no bearing on our salvation. Is that right? No. No. Some of these things we struggle with. Um, and what we know are some clear... Uh, broad conclusions. We know there's separation. We know there's going to be a removal of us when we die to be with him awaiting that final day. We know that there will be a Hades for the lost. And then comes that the final judgment and the separation into the lake of fire. We know those things, but a lot of the details we don't know. I yes. didn't hear Linda's question to you. She said, go ahead and say it again. I said all of our understanding or lack of understanding of this has no bearing on our salvation. Oh. Yeah. Also, yes. one thing that I heard, I have no idea if this is true or not, that um, once that takes place and we're in Christ and pass away and go to heaven, that we're all in that age group of Christ. Another <laughs> another thing that I don't know for sure. I haven't written a paper on that. But all I can say is I hope we're younger. <laughs> I think probably you know some have said, well, will kids that die will they be more of a young adult? Will we all? The scripture doesn't tell us that for sure. But, excuse me. Why do they need to be? What? Younger, a child, younger. Look older. Right. We don't know. I mean, we, we have no idea about those things. No. Some of us, and, and I remember one of my professors, Dr. Walbert. You ever heard of that name? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Very, very, uh, he was the president of Dallas Seminary. He taught one of our classes. And he was talking about heaven. And he was talking about this very kind of thing, you know, that he thinks we're going to all be younger and stronger. And some of the guys in class raised their hand. They said, Dr. Walbert, how will we know you? <laughs> because, because he was anything but young at the time. You know, so, we, so they were just going, how will we recognize you? We won't know you. So that was kind of a laugh. So some we, of us will have gray hair, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Nice yeah. here. We don't, we don't know. Okay. Um, notice again, no mention of annihilation. No mention of universalism purgatory, inclusivism, just final terms, suffering, which is eternal. We know that. So let's move on here to the writings of the apostles, and we'll look at a couple things. We've got, by my watch, about um, 12, 13 minutes. Close? Okay, here we go. Oh, fast speed. Romans. Romans 2, 5 says this, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, it's talking particularly to, to Jews here who are physical descendants of Abraham, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Think of the Pharisees. 
who felt like they were on top of the world and had it all right. And Jesus says, you are whitewashed tombs. Because they had not been given life. They had not even sought life. They thought they were fine. They thought their outward things were good. He's writing to this kind of people here and saying, there's coming a day of righteous wrath and that's where you're heading and you're even increasing it, which, which <laughs> says there may be different levels of suffering in hell. <laughs> different levels. Now, uh, look at chapter 3. Verses 5 and 6. But if our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, uh, our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Think about that. Those who want to come up with annihilationism and those who want to come up with universalism, in essence, are saying and believe that God would be unrighteous to do that. He would not be. That's what Paul is saying. What shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? God's righteousness is just, and it's coming, and it's going to happen. Look over at Ephesians 5 and 6. I, I love Ephesians chapter 5. One of my favorite portions of that book to teach on and in chapter 5 verses 5 and 6 for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God let no one deceive you with what empty words how many times have you heard someone say oh yes I'm a Christian oh you are then why are you living like you're living right now why are you in this situation? Well, because I went forward when I was five. That means nothing. Did you get life then? Were you born again? Did the Spirit of God come in to your heart? Do you have a heart to serve Him? So he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The righteous wrath. Of God. Look over at 2 Thessalonians. Again, one of my favorite sections. It was when I was studying, preaching, preaching through in the church back in Colorado about 15 to 20 years ago, preaching through 1 and 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to reveal something to you now that you probably haven't known. But while preaching through these two books, having gone to Dallas Seminary, having been a part of the dispensational theologians movement for years and years. I had been pre-trib, pre-mill, and a Jewish kingdom. During the preaching through these two books, I became post-trib. My wife was saying to me, you need to be careful. She said, you're going to have a lot of friends in Dallas that think you have fallen off the end of the, of the earth and that maybe you're not even a believer anymore I said but that's what I'm seeing the text say guess what in 1 Thessalonians 4 the world the word is at the coming of the Lord parousia or parousia so 
dispensationalists take that as the rapture of the church going up to be with the Lord before the final 70th week of Daniel and the great tribulation. But guess what? In my study, I'm looking over at 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and it says the same word. Don't think that the Lord has come, parousia, until the appearance of the man of lawlessness. And there will be a great falling away. Now, when I'm looking at Greek and I'm, I'm studying the Word of God and I see the same terms used by the same writer to the same church within months of each other, and, and we're trying to build a rapture that occurs over here before the tribulation, and over here the same writer to the same church using the same words says, don't think that the coming of the Lord occurs until the man of lawlessness is on the scene, pouring out wrath. All of a sudden, I'm going, oh, that changes my view. Now, if you're pre-trib, that's okay. We can fellowship. I hope you will with me because I'm post-trib. Um, but that's where the Word of God brought me. I think believers are going to go through the tribulation as well. As well. I don't see anything that assures me that believers will be taken out. I wish I could say that. Because I would volunteer for that. <laughs> but I, I came away going, I don't see that. I don't see that in the Word of God. Now listen to this passage, by the way. This all led into what I'm going to read to you. Chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 2 is where I found that same word in verse 1 of chapter 2. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to Him, same phraseology as 1 Thessalonians 4, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed other, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now look back at chapter 1, verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out, now notice what he does when he comes back, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What's he going to do? Deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Now, John Stott would say that destruction means they're going to be destroyed. By the way, you can find, if you did a Greek study on that word, or just even on that word in the English, you would find that there's destruction, that same word, does not mean eradicated. Pla plenty of places where it's not used in terms of eliminated, eradicated. So he says, eternal destruction. What does this eternal destruction do to them? It will put them in a place away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. 
doesn't say they're going to cease to exist. When the day of the Lord comes and He comes back, the first thing He will do after He catches up believers is to destroy the wicked. And then I think then would come the creation of the new heavens and new earth. But notice also what He's going to do in verse 10. Same, same sequence here. They will be removed from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. John, what? Four? Four minutes. Okay, good. All right. Now, in addition to that, there is Jude 7, 15. Seven, Jude 7, I'm sorry. Jude 7 and 15. Jude's only one chapter. What's the only one chapter book in the Old Testament? Jude. Old Testament? Oh, Obadiah. That's why we call him Obi-Wan. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Okay. So the, the issue is, let me give you, in Revelation, we didn't get to a lot of these. Turn, turn to one of the big ones. Revelation 14. I'll give you the rest if you want to write them. In Re Revelation 14 is filled with some very graphic pictures. 9 to 11 of 14. <clears throat> And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name pretty graphic pretty hard for rejecting for rejecting that which God gave here write this down if you want to uh, Revelation 19:20 Chapter 20, verses 10 to 15. That's the judgment, the casting into the lake of fire. 20, 10 to 15. And even in 21 and 22, 21, 8 and 27, and 22, 12 and 13. 21, 8 and 27, and 22, 12 to 15. By the way, just quickly as we close, and I know there's only about two minutes. I may read this to you next week a little bit, but I have a paper that I got offline called A Traditionalist Response to John Stott's Arguments on Annihilationism. One of the things that the people are critical of God are is that it, it, it just doesn't seem fair. It, it doesn't seem fair that he would do this, cause people to be judged for eternity. So they question God's justice. What I'm going to do next time, I'll start off by reading some of these to you. But he says, let's go back to the Old Testament and look at God's and the New Testament as well. What about Ananias and Sapphira? Was that just? What did they do? Lied? Lied ultimately to God, to the Holy Spirit. What about the guy, Achan, who reaches over to keep the ark from falling yeah. off the cart? Yeah. Yeah. He committed... A great sin, even though in his mind he may have been trying to do good, he touched that which was holy 
and he died. What about the priests that offered, messed up the sacrifices? They died. God is infinite and holy. And even we in our lifetime now understand, if I sin, if I sin against you and do something evil to you, that's one thing. But if I sin against the senator from the state of Florida, that's another thing. When we sin against God who created us and formed us and made us and has offered us a way of salvation through His Son at great price, when I reject that, what do I deserve? What do I, what do I deserve? So think about these things. We'll pick it up there next week, and I'll read you some more of what he has to say. But he has some good points. Don't question the justice of Almighty God. Read what Scripture says, and look that it is sin against Him. It is rejection, if we've heard, of the offering of His Son. To say, I don't need that. I don't want that. I'm not following you. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to because I only go around once. And I'm going to get all the enjoyment that I can. Okay, you're dismissed. I'll see you, Lord willing, next week.